Um, so as we get going, looking at Exodus, uh, we'll be in 21 through 24, and we already looked at um, the first part of Exodus 20 where we get the Ten Commandments, right? So we all know that we all have rules in our households, right? Whether you live alone, like you still have like these habits that you follow, or you live with a roommate, or you live with a family, things like, you know, putting away your... Uh, dirty clothes and washing your dishes and making sure your trash gets taken out on a certain day of the week. Um, These are just like basic rules that are easy to understand and we can easily see the wisdom in them. You know, you don't even always have to necessarily like review these rules. It's just like a way of life um, to make life run smoothly. Um, So our family in the Tatum household, we have a very important rule actually and it is, um, the rule goes like this. You have to eat all of your dinner in order to get a bluebird. Like, that's our rule. And it doesn't make sense if you are not a Tatum, right? Um, That rule does not easily translate to anybody else unless you are part of our family. Um, Because, like, if you hear that rule, quite literally, it sounds like, okay, so if you eat your dinner, then you get a bluebird. Like, what does that mean? What does this bluebird mean? So um, in our family, what that means is that the rule is you don't have to eat all of your dinner, um, but if you do eat everything, you may get a dessert afterwards. And the term bluebird means you have eaten all of your dinner and you now get to get a dessert. You have received a bluebird. (laughs) Um, And this rule originated like 30 years ago in my childhood, like some babysitter of mine like made this like offhanded, you know, comment about like, if you eat all of your dinner, this magical bird lands on your plate and then flies away before you even see it. And for whatever reason, like my brother and sister and I like locked in on this. (laughs) And so this became like our family rule that like, if you eat all your dinner, you get a bluebird. And it has now, like, passed on to the next generation of uh, my kids and my nieces and nephews that this is the rule. When you finish your meal, you shout, bluebird. And that's how we all know you've done what you were told to do, and you may now go and have your dessert. So um, now I'm telling you guys this story because the chapters of Scripture that we're going to be in looking at today, there's a bunch of rules, right? There's like, I think, 47 or 50 rules in, in this uh, few chapters. And um, just like my bluebird rule, many of these rules make little sense to us today, right? Um, and some of them, when we read through them, they actually seem really harsh. Um, they don't make sense. They're confusing. And so... That's kind of, we need to approach it in a different way than we normally do. So last week, we looked at the Ten Commandments, and those are all rules that we are fairly familiar with, right? And I think we can all agree, like, they're wise rules. Like, we understand the logic and the wisdom behind each of the Ten Commandments. Um, so what follows the Ten Commandments in Exodus is something called the Book of the Covenant. So chapters 21 through chapter 23 are basically a whole bunch of laws and ordinances that are fleshing out what the Ten Commandments look like. Um, so that's the passage that we're studying today. So these ordinances, these provide a basic teaching for uh, the nature of divine justice. 
The Ten Commandments, we know, like they summarize the basic principles of justice, which God demanded of his people. And then the rules and commands that follow, those demonstrate how the Ten Commandments would be applied to real-life situations. And then ultimately through this, what we see is through God's instructions, we get to see God's heart. So there is actually like beauty and purpose behind all of these other rules that we get into. So when we approach the following passages, when we look at these chapters in Scripture, we need to understand the context, right? We need to understand, we need to trust that there is wisdom in these rules, even if we don't immediately see it. We know God is a God of wisdom, so we need to trust that there's wisdom in these rules. Um, We need to remember the character of God, that he is full of compassion and justice and mercy, even when we are reading this passage of Scripture. Um, We need to be able to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And what I mean by that is that um, what do we know about the teachings of Jesus that would influence the way that we read this Old Testament passage? Like, that's how we have to approach Scripture. Um, These things, like those ways of looking at Scripture, those help set a good foundation for us when we interact with these confusing passages or passages we don't really agree with or that no longer seem to apply to us. And that's what makes scripture so cool, right? Um, Because it's like this rich and layered and nuanced way of reading. If we approach it with that that posture, if we approach it with humility and understanding that we know who God is, so how do we see his character displayed through this passage? So um, open up. We're going to first look at the end of chapter 20, looking at verses 22 and 23. And what we want to look at first is what are these things even here for? What are these commands, these laws? um, What are they here for and why do they exist? So to set the tone, read with me, follow along in uh, end of chapter 20, right after the Ten Commandments, starting in verse 22. And it will be up on the screen. We're going to be like highlighting so many verses, but we're, we're not going to read the whole chapters, but we are going to read a bunch of different verses. So just, um, it'll be up on the screen though if you need it. So looking at verse 22, look, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. So, remember, that's given right after the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments began, we know, with the command that Israel have no other God than Yahweh. That's the first commandment. And so the Book of the Covenant begins with this command right here, and then it ends, again, with this same command. And so everything in between um, in these two chapters here is meant to ensure that Israel stays faithful to their one true God, that they would prioritize worshiping God alone. So they're bookended. These commands are bookended with that in mind. So in this ancient time, laws of civilization were established by different Near Eastern cultures. And the point was of all of these, um, you know, established um, like cultures was that they would maintain order, Right. And the kings who were over these cultures, they were thought to have divine authority. And so they were the ones who established the legal laws and the legal wisdom. So that is what is happening here. That is like how it is set. um, And that, that is the history that the Israelites are in right now. Okay, so to the Israelites, God was their king, their ruling authority. So 
Keep in mind now that these commands that God is giving the Israelites, this covenant was not given to all the people right then, right? And this, co- this covenant was not given to all the nations, to all of humanity. It was given to the people of God in ancient Israel at a specific time in history as part of the covenant. Remember, they had been set free from op- oppression and slavery, And so now God is going to use them to embody a new way of living. And they were to be different people, right? They were to embody a new way of justice, of of how to do family, of how to be in community, of how to worship. They were to do things differently that would set them apart. Um, Because God did not set them free from Egypt to then oppress others, right? In fact, so these laws, so many of these laws bring special attention to the vulnerable and to the oppressed. And so if Israel would receive this covenant and they would follow these commands, they would then get to be shaped by the values and standards of these laws. And then they would also get to point to the redemptive nature of God and get to reflect his character. And that would be, like, incredibly radical to this ancient time that they were in. So we need to be careful that we don't look at these chapters and think, okay, well, none of this applies to me now, right? Um, Nor do we need to read these chapters and immediately put them into action exactly as they is told, okay? Um, So instead, what we need to do when we read through Scripture is find the redemptive thread and follow that. So that's what I want us to do. Um, So what we do is we get to see this picture of redemption and restoration of God working out principles of wisdom and justice, so, yeah, there, if you've read these chapters, you know there are commands in here that, like, still sound terrible, right? Um, like, how is this good news when we're still dealing with slavery, right? Like, God could have just abolished it, but he didn't. How is this good news for women? You know, he could have, in this time, immediately made them equal in society, but that's not what happens in this section right now. Um, So what we need to remember, though, is in order for Scripture to be timeless to us today, we have to first figure out how it was timely back then. And so what might seem bizarre or unjust to us today as we read this, back then it was a huge movement towards redemption. Compared to other cultures with similar practices, this new way of living looked radical. It looked full of justice and compassion and mercy and kindness. So what might seem archaic to us today, to the Israelites, these are huge steps forward. This matters so much because we have to always seek to see the redemptive nature of God. We cannot lose sight of that when we're reading scripture. So what I want to do is kind of highlight a few different ways that these laws brought good news to the Israelites. So I've broken them up into five different categories that we can look at, and we're going to kind of walk through the next couple of chapters. So we'll start with chapter 21. And so you can see, well, here's how, um, so these are how I broke it up, um, these, this couple of chapters. So we were dealing with slavery, behavior, restitution, social justice, and Sabbath and festivals. So a wide variety of topics. Um, So we're going to start with chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. 
deal with slavery. So we're going to apply this redemptive lens um, through looking at um, what God's word says about slavery here. So it's hard to fully unpack this, right? Because we all have this really distinct image of slavery, right? And I mean, I like standing up here even talking about it just feels really uncomfortable, right? Um, So we have this image, but it's not quite accurate for this time. Um, And what they're talking about, it's it's more severe than what we would imagine a servant to be, right? But um, from what I'm understanding, it's not as quite as severe as, you know, what we imagine um, African slavery to be. Nonetheless, in this original culture, there was something like slavery. Um, There was an unfree person, and this did come with many abuses. So, there's this law that is given to provide better conditions and fewer abuses. So there's this movement towards redemption. So consider our own history. Um, Do we have the verse? Okay, so here, let's read this first, looking at verse uh, 2 and 3 from Exodus 21. So it says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he's to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. And if he comes alone, he's to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. So again, so you can see there's there's like this thread of redemption that we can see start to unfold. Um, so let's step back and consider our own history here, right? Let's narrow the scope to what we know, what we're most familiar with, um, you know, looking at the history of American slavery. So, you know, there is such a thing as a slave Bible. And... The slave Bible was something that um, missionaries, that it was given to slaves, and a lot of the Bible was taken out of it. So um, anything that gave, like, indication of freedom or um, hope or the ex- actually the story of the Exodus, like, it was taken out. And then they were given... A Bible that is not actually accurate, right? Um, so, all of this, like this hope, that the, the verses that would give them hope and bondage, verses like Exodus 21, like we just read, those were removed from the Bible um, that they were given to the slaves. Because, why? Because it offered hope, right? It showed movement towards redemption. So we know, like, slavery is illegal, right? We know that there's still, like, massively terrible things happening in this world. But from what we're talking about when we're talking about American slavery, we know that that is illegal. We are all in agreement that that was a horrific, unjust way of living. But we also have to recognize, um, so we've made steps towards redemption, right? Um, But we also have to recognize that there's the impact of slavery is still woven into our country, Right? White supremacy didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, the economic structures were not set up with fairness and equity in mind for former slaves. So while we see that there is movement towards redemption, it's still not the ultimate way of living and being human yet. Right? One day, there will be complete and perfect redemption and restoration, but we're not there yet. 
But until that day, as God's people today, that's something that we fight against and we pursue. We pursue that reconciliation, that redemption, that restoration that's missing um, that has been because of impacts hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So that's the first section that we'll look at. The second section I want us to look at, looking at the laws, is um, addressing behavior. So looking at... um, We'll look at the next section. This one unpacks various laws about injuries related to people and animals. And the main punishment, or the main principle would be that the punishment should fit the crime. So uh, we'll read, uh, looking at verses 22 through 25. So the law says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. So this is where we first hear the phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that Jesus later expands upon. And this, so this law right here, the movement towards redemption is that it was meant to keep revenge from running wild, okay? So no more responses like, you beat up my brother, so now I'm going to kill you, okay? So this is supposed to kind of just level the, level the playing field. So this was actually movement towards a more just society. Um, the next section that we can look at is under the, the looking at restitution. So if you look at verses 21, 33 through Chapter 22, we'll go to the next slide, Bill. Um, these verses deal with restitution, basically giving back what's been taken. So what do you do if you get ripped off or someone rips you off, right? How do you deal with property? That's what these laws deal with. And so it says um, here, whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. And if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. So in these cases, the laws appear... We'll just go ahead and keep going. Thanks, Bill. Um, appear fair, right? Respect one another's property. These laws were meant to bring order and love and respect to this new community of people. God is once again teaching them how to live with each other how to love their neighbors. In other cultures, in the same time period, a thief was killed, right? Um, So God's law here is prioritizing life over stuff, over possessions, prioritizing making things right, not just fair, but by giving generously to help restore true equity. So the next passage um, in these sections of laws, it deals with social justice. And this section is so powerful here. So here we see God's heart for the vulnerable and the disadvantaged. God's people are not called to just simply obey laws, but to show love and to care for those in need. Essentially, God is calling them to show the same type of love that they received from him when he brought them out of Egypt. They were not set free. Again, we were talking about this. They're not set free so that then they could oppress others. God is setting them up to do different. From their own redemption, the Israelites were now called to respond with this generous love. So these sets of laws here in this section, um, they were set to shape them into a, a people that would reflect the heart of God. God expects his people to care for those in need. 
Um, and when we care for others, we participate in the redemption and restoration of this world. It's this act of kingdom living. So look at a few of these verses here. Um, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Again, reminding them of where they came from. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Is there another one, Bill? If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. They were told to care for the foreigner, to care for the orphan, to care for the widow, to care for the poor, to show mercy and compassion. And this was a different way of living. God called his people to imitate him, noticing and caring for the vulnerable among us. That's what we get to do now, to reflect God's heart. I love this because I think about when they were enslaved. In the very beginning, when um, God comes to Moses, he says, I have heard the cry of my people. You know, It's the same thing. God is still hearing the cries of the vulnerable, and now he's inviting the Israelites to help reflect his heart to them. Um, In this ancient culture, this would have been a really big deal. Again, it's that movement towards redemption. So finally, there's the Sabbath and festivals. We come to the set of instructions on the Sabbath and festivals. The Lord declares the Sabbath a day of rest for all, right, including animals, slaves, and foreigners. So let's look at chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. And it says, the law says, for six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie and plowed and unused. Then the, poor among, uh, then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. He's giving rest to every single person, not just the privileged, right? It's amazing. On the seventh year, the people were to rest from sowing and gathering so that the poor may benefit from the land. Once again, we see the heart of God shows his great love for the vulnerable in these laws. He's not telling them to just figure it out, but he's actually providing a way for them. So over and over, uh, through these commands, we see God's heart to redeem a broken culture, to provide for the vulnerable, to protect the purity of his people, to set them apart for a better way of living, to pursue that righteous living. So these laws were incredibly important to Israel because it guided their everyday lives and it gave them ways to display and declare God's power and compassion and his justice and his mercy. But what do we do with them today, right? Like you read this and you still think, okay, yeah, but like wh- what do we do these, with these laws? Why are they here and what do they do? To, what do we do with them now? Because we're not in the same cultural setting as Israel was. This is not our same time in history. So these rules aren't meant to be applied exactly. Um, but they're also not meant to be ignored. So what does it look like to read this passage through the lens of Jesus? How do we interact with this narrative knowing what we know about Jesus? 
Because it's not enough to read this story independent of him. Because Jesus is the actual embodiment of redemption. Everything we know to be true about redemption flows from the character and the life, the heart, the teachings of Jesus. The Bible, we know, it is not meant to inform us, but to transform us. So with that in mind, how do we respond to passages like this? So what we do is we got to, again, interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we're going to look at Jesus and what he has to say about this. So flip to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to end. Um, when Jesus is teaching the crowds during the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read along, starting in verse 17. Jesus says here, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So when he's talking about the law and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament. And when he's talking about the law, he's talking about passages just like this. So Jesus, when he is giving this Sermon on the Mount, he is likely answering a question that would have been in the mind of the crowd, right? They're probably thinking, what is Jesus' relationship to the law? Because they're all familiar with the law. So what does Jesus have to do with the law? And Jesus stands up before them and declares that he's actually there to fulfill it. So this term fulfill, it has a couple of meanings. You know, it can first mean to just obey what the scriptures demand for God's set-apart people, which Jesus did, right? Um, But it's also more than that, too. It also means to be made complete. Um, So the Old Testament law, it was radical for the people at the time, but it didn't make things perfect, and it could not be perfectly kept. So for Jesus to come and to say that he came to fulfill them, like that is the really radical statement. Jesus wanted to make clear to his audience that even though he was ushering in a new way of life and teaching, he was not doing away with the requirements of the Old Testament. The Old Testament law, the law of the Israelites, um, this was and is important because it outlines what God honors and what, decla- what God declares as righteousness. So this law in here, it helps us to see our sin and our need for a Savior. So what do we do? What, what do we make of it when Jesus continues to go on um, in Matthew 5? And he says, I don't think I have a slide for this one. Um, he goes on to say to them, Unless your righteousness surpasses unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, they had this reputation, right, for really nailing it. So what does that mean for us? Like if we can't even keep if we can't if ours is to our righteousness is to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. But what they're dealing with what he's talking about is this external righteousness based on what others could see based on what made them look good, right? And Jesus is completely uninterested in this. He's explaining a righteousness of a different kind. He's not interested in an outer righteousness that's motivated to show others how good we look, but an inner righteousness that shows how gracious and powerful and just God is. Like, we want to know the character of God and be able to reflect the character of God. So the Pharisees here, when Jesus is talking, he's, they thought that their excellent rule-keeping was enough to make them righteous, but Jesus does what he does best, and he flips that thinking upside down. 
So in Exodus, what's so great is that when Moses gathered the people together to proclaim this new way of living, it was a movement towards redemption, towards that divine and right justice. But that wasn't the final movement. And then Jesus, later he gathers a crowd together to also proclaim a new way of living. And Jesus' teaching here dives deep below the surface, making us realize that it's not simply about addressing our behavior. He's dealing with heart issues, and Jesus calls us to a new way of living. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with it, you know that Jesus repeatedly says, You have heard it said, but I tell you this. And he says this over and over again. And he's talking about the law when he says, You have heard it said this. And anytime we see a word or a phrase repeated in scripture, it's trying to draw our attention to something, right? So this phrase draws attention to the new teachings of Jesus' ministry. In other words, what he's trying to say here is, it used to be this way with the law and the covenant, but now it's this way. He's essentially saying, you think it's about your behavior, but I've got news for you. It's actually about your heart. And then he goes on to unpack um, the example we already talked about. He uses the eye for an eye law as an example. And we're familiar with this when he talks about this. He says um, he's offering, Jesus is offering this new sort of justice, this healing and restorative justice. And he says, you have heard it said, I don't think I have this slide, do I? I'll just read it. He says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. What was said in Exodus but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The old way of the law we've talked about was to prevent revenge from escalating. Better to make it even, right, an eye for an eye, than to allow it to continue to escalate, escalate and get worse and worse. Like all the other laws, it was meant to protect people, to provide fairness and justice. But here we have Jesus who goes straight for the heart. Better to have no vengeance at all and seek a creative way forward in the way of love and patience and a way that reflects the heart of God. So the laws were good, right? They were good, but we know and we see that they could not be kept. If only things were that easy, right? If only we just did what we were told to do. If only we just did things because we knew that it was the right thing to do. But all of this is impossible in our own strength. God's standards of righteousness, though, is an invitation to Jesus. That's what I love about this so much. It's why it matters to see the, the thread of redemption all the way through. What we get in Exodus is an invitation to Jesus. And Jesus provides for us what we cannot accomplish on our own. And then what he does is God credits believers with his perfection. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and that is not to be forgotten. As a believer, when God looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, which is just incredible. The Israelites were given this law 50 days after leaving Egypt. 50 days into their freedom, they received these commands. And then 50 days after Jesus was resurrected, believers were given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that is living within each believer. 
The Holy Spirit is the one that produces that God-pleasing righteousness. Nothing we do earns that. It's the work of the Spirit within us. So when we understand that we cannot keep the law on our own, that we cannot achieve this perfect divine justice that we all desire, that invites the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and our minds. Because the bad news is that we can't keep the law, right? The good news is, though, that Jesus did, and he's the one who embodies that true righteousness. And Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness when we put our faith in him. And he is working in us, transforming us into righteousness, helping us to live and love rightly from the inside out. The law was never intended to be a long-term solution for the people of God. We're going to do one last reading, looking at going back to Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 through 8. This is how the, this set of commands ends. He took, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses confirmed the covenant with the people through the sprinkling of blood. And like Israel, we are a people sprinkled with the blood. The law highlights the real problem. No, we can't keep it. The long-term solution, though, the perfect final solution is Jesus himself. So we get to participate now in remembering that through communion. Jesus declares, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when we participate in communion, we get to declare that I can't keep the law perfectly. As much as I want to be full of justice and mercy and compassion, I fall short. I don't do everything I know I should do. And yet, we have a Savior who rescues us from our own brokenness, whose blood completely fulfills what we cannot, who loves you so much and believes that you matter. So we take the bread that represents Jesus' body. Dip it in the wine that represents Jesus' blood. And we take it and we give thanks and we eat. Jesus is working in us. He is transforming us. He is helping us to live and love rightly from the inside out. And that is ultimately very good news. Let me pray for us.